people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 81. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Kate Sweeney, professor of psychology at UC Riverside, to discuss the psychology of patients. This has been a key research focus for Dr. Sweeney, and Ryan and I thought this would be an excellent topic to cover because it's something that affects all of us in both our professional or personal lives. So with that, Kate, do you have anything you'd like to add that the audience might want to know about you before we dive into the episode? Hey, uh, first, really happy to be here. I should probably follow with a confession that I'm really a, a social psychologist, not so much a personality psychologist, but uh, being at a program with lots of really eminent personality psychologists, Ryan included, uh, for much of my career, I've learned a thing or two, so I will do my best to honor your audience's interests. Well, Kate, thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. And of course, that's totally uh, acceptable. We've we've actually been broadening out uh, uh, our podcast reach to include, we, we've had people from a, a variety of fields, not necessarily uh, directly tied to personality psychology on as guests in the past. And so we're super excited to have you here. Just just for our audience's knowledge, um, you know, Blake mentioned you're a professor of psychology at UC Riverside. Uh, I know you recently took on the role of associate dean, uh, partly dealing with graduate students and and graduate faculty advisor issues. So that sounds like a place where you would need a lot of patience to, <laughs> to handle that. So we're, we're excited to have you here to talk about that today. Um, I'll also mention, uh, Kate has more than 4,000 citations of her research. She's published, uh, as far as I could tell, more uh, around 80 publications in peer-reviewed journals, more than 114 total publications, if you include trade publications, book chapters, uh, and those sorts of things as well. She's an SPSP fellow. SPSP stands for the Society of Personality and Social Psychology. She was listed as an APS rising star uh, uh, several years ago when her career was uh, just rising. It's certainly risen at this point, uh, I calculated uh, close to a million dollars in total grant funding, including some two very large NSF grants, if I have that correct. I also uh, should note that Kate has won the Faculty of the Year Award at the University of California Riverside uh, Psychology Department, as far as I know, three times in a, uh, three times total, which is pretty amazing for a short career. Uh, Faculty Mentor of the Year Award as well. And I think that's also a really uh, useful thing to mention here. So uh, Kate and I knew each other uh, when I was a graduate student finishing up as a graduate student, UC Riverside, Kate, um, Kate, I guess it was actually not so much when I was finishing up, I guess I was, we were actually overlapped quite a bit. Uh, Kate came out as a new faculty member fairly uh, early in my graduate career. And even though Kate and I did not work together and Kate was not my faculty mentor, um, 
she did a lot of faculty mentoring for me and many other students as well, and, and continued to be a mentor for me uh, as I uh, began my my uh, previous career as a faculty member. Kate was a, a, an important resource for me and, and really gave me a lot of great advice. So um, really happy to have you on the podcast today, Kate. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think we did a lot of that mentoring over beers, which is just my favorite way to be a mentor. <laughs> well, I need to get into this program, it sounds like, but uh, I digress. You know, Kate, I, we start these episodes off typically just trying to, you know, understand a little bit more about, you know, how our guests got involved in the particular field or area of research that they've been focusing on. So I guess my first question out of the gate is what got you interested in researching patients? Yeah, so there's, I guess, sort of the boring question and then the slightly more personal or uh, answer, excuse me, or and then the slightly more personal answer. The, the, the sort of boring professional answer is that when I uh, was graduating from college, I had been a psychology major the whole time. Um, I had sort of an early inkling when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 that psychology was of interest to me, kind of for all the wrong reasons. But as it happened, once I found out what psychology actually was, I still liked it. Um, and so as I was heading off to grad school or getting ready to, um, I saw a talk by the person who ultimately became my doctoral advisor, James Shepard, uh, who's at the University of Florida. And his talk was about this specific phenomenon that he called bracing for the worst. Um, and without getting into a whole thing about bracing, though we certainly can, the basic idea is that people tend to be really optimistic about their futures. Just humans tend to have that kind of positive stance. But when we get really close to a moment of truth, when we're about to find out some news about ourselves or of relevance to ourselves, we tend to become abject pessimists in those moments in an effort to protect ourselves from disappointment. So it's kind of a fussy little phenomenon, but I thought it was really interesting. I related to it. Um, and so I went to grad school to work with him on, on that and, uh, and related topics. Over six years of grad school, my interests evolved um, into lots of different related areas, giving bad news, information avoidance. But still always, I kind of had this focus on the, the ways we manage uncertainty. So when I got to UC Riverside and I had to uh, strike out on my own with my own independent research program, um, I, I had just come off this <laughs> mildly, maybe more than mildly traumatic experience of being on the job market for academic positions. A lot of waiting, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of coping. Uh, and I think that was really fresh in my mind. And so over the first few years, I started to develop this research program looking at this experience that we all know so well, which is waiting for some kind of news. It's coming. You can't get it any sooner than, than it's coming. Uh, and that, that feeling of kind of paralysis is incredibly stressful and no one had studied it. So that's kind of where I started. And I guess 15 years later now, I'm still really looking at those same questions, but have evolved more into this broader question of patience that I'm sure we'll discuss. Well, I, I think that's a, a, a very logical sort of uh, uh, sort of set of steps to go from one topic to the other. I think that this topic of bracing is actually really interesting because it's one that everybody can relate to, right? Every, <laughs> I mean, here I am. I'm, as you said that, Kate, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so we released this podcast episode, and we're probably going to say to ourselves, "Well, this is the worst episode we've ever done <laughs> in history," right? Because because you know we we don't want to set you know, in the moment we don't want to set expectations too high. Of course, uh, at the moment. We, we invite Kate to be on. We're like, this is going to be the best episode ever in history. And then, right. So, so you, you do this all the time. I mean, you think about this with everything. Uh, I think a lot of people do this, but I guess one of the questions I have there is a Kate is sort of a follow-up is, um, are, are there sort of individual differences in that or does everybody sort of follow that pattern or, it, it, and I actually, I mean, you might think that I would know the answer given our 
passage, but I actually don't. I actually don't know the answer to this question. So, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we actually did publish a paper, I think maybe 2015, so not too long ago, where we looked at exactly that question, although somewhat narrowly. So uh, we had a whole bunch of studies in our lab. I think the total ended up being something like 23 studies um, where we had looked at bracing in some way or another. And we also had various individual differences that were consistently collected across studies. In that particular paper, we focused on dispositional optimism, so a a sort of um, consistent tendency in one's life to see the upside of things, to expect the best, but kind of manage things well, even if it goes poorly. You know, those cheery optimists that we all know and (laughs) find annoying sometimes. Um, So we measured that across lots of studies. It would seem logical that maybe people who have that cheery disposition of optimism wouldn't be as prone to that kind of last minute freak out before a moment of truth. We also looked at a a sort of different, slightly different kind of expectation tendency called defensive pessimism. Um, That's a tendency really having to do with preparing for some kind of event or performance uh, where people will intentionally embrace pessimism. I'm definitely going to fail this test. I'm definitely going to bomb this podcast in order to generate anxiety to motivate them to do something about it, to prepare. So we looked at those two. We thought those were pretty logical targets. We also looked at um, intolerance of uncertainty, which is another you know, obviously uncertainty relevant, um, like trait-ish personality uh, measure. And so anyway, none of those matter <laughs> is, the, is the long and short of it. So it, it, it's not to say that uh, none of those factors predicted people's expectations overall. So optimists are, go figure, more optimistic overall in all of these different circumstances we studied. But when you're looking at that shift, so where did you start and where did you end up right before you get news? That tendency, that slope, uh, statistically speaking, wasn't predicted by any of those individual differences. So we experience expectations differently depending on the kind of person we are. We all seem to kind of feel that situational press of impending feedback in, in a somewhat similar way, at least on those measures. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Awesome. I well, and also thanks for pointing out that you know I've only missed you know one of your publications with twenty three studies in it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry to keep track. <laughs> Well, and I find myself to be kind of that that annoying optimist that you 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 mentioned. However, maybe that's more so applied whenever it's uh, helping someone else who's maybe waiting on something and they're trying to be patient. I'm like, hey, everything's gonna be fine. Everything's fine. But then whenever it's me that's waiting, I can I can I can find myself being the pessimist as well. So whatever it's it's applied to just myself, yes, I'm probably a little bit more doom and gloom. But for others, I'm like, hey, you know, glass half full. Uh, things are going to be okay. Uh, I don't know. That's really interesting. You know, I talk to my parents a lot about my research. They're two smart cookies who have good ideas about things. And so, um, you know, over the years, we've talked a lot about what I study and and my parents really differ in this. My mom is more of a worrier. Um, I wouldn't say a pessimist, but she's certainly not, um, you know, an upbeat optimist either. My dad is very much a quintessential optimist. But he confesses when I push him on it that he is an optimist for sort of his own outcomes. He just doesn't worry that much. But when someone he loves is going through some sort of uncertainty, you know, my mom has had a few bouts of cancer that she has um, survived and thrived after I have had my various share of troubles. Those are the kind of things that get to him. So you're kind of the, the flip side of that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see that. Um I mean, it's, it's fascinating regardless. That's why I thought this was going to be such an interesting topic to cover on the podcast, uh, because I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate in one way or another. So I, I guess moving on to my next question, much of your research centers around how people cope with stressful moments of uncertainty, such as 
as we mentioned, waiting for important news. So what are some of the things you've learned through your research in this area? Yeah, that has been, um, in some ways, kind of the pursuit of my career so, so far. I guess we can say I'm somewhere in the you know first half or midpoint, I guess, of my career. Um, and I, I started out really just curious how people feel and and think when they're waiting. We just didn't really know much about that particular kind of uh, of stressor. If, if the field had given it any attention at all, it was really just a type of stress and coping and, and nothing more than that. Uh, I had an, an instinct early on that, that it is something worse or different or something. It provides a different kind of challenge to us in terms of coping. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. You know, once you kind of know what you're dealing with, we all have a variety, you know, to varying degrees of, uh, of kind of a toolbox of coping um, with things that we understand, with things that we know are happening. It doesn't mean that's easy. It might present a whole bunch of new uncertainties, but there's kind of a, a plan of action we can make at that point. Until we learn some news, we are just in, as I mentioned, kind of a state of paralysis. And for lots of reasons that I've thought about, including evolutionary um, kind of pressures that might have pointed us in this direction, it seems like that kind of paralysis state is really challenging. So having spent the first maybe six or seven years of this research program establishing how difficult that experience is, uh, I was I was uh, bereft to discover that I hadn't actually really found any solutions to, to that problem. We had we had asked people how they cope with waiting. We had looked at whether that uh, those kind of reports of coping seemed to have any impact on their uh, feelings about waiting. The answer was no, not really. We all seem quite bad at this. So then we set off, my lab and I set off to try to figure out, you know, can we build a toolbox for people that maybe maybe isn't obvious, maybe it's not the first thing they'd think to reach for, but that really we could uh, teach people to use. Um, I could say a lot about that. I, I won't go on and on here right now, but I'll give you kind of a few of the highlights and, and we can dive in wherever you find it interesting. Um, the, the one that I've probably thought the most about in terms of coping with waiting is uh, finding a flow state. And that research on flow is uh, massive and complicated and messy. So there's a lot to say about that. But it kind of boils down to like engaging deeply in some kind of activity, being in the zone. I think a lot of times when people are stressed, their instinct is to kind of check out, relax, binge Netflix, you know, just kind of don't think. Um, and that's a really hard thing to maintain in the face of really intense worry. So it turns out that really getting into something deep is probably the better way to help time go by quickly, to quiet your worrisome thoughts and um, suppress some of those or uh, reduce some of those anxious feelings. Um, we've also studied mindfulness, which is a topic most people are really tired of hearing about, but turns out to be really effective for things like managing uncertainty. Um, and then we've looked at some other uh, maybe sort of, I don't know, smaller interventions you could say around um, adjusting the way people are thinking about the outcome that they might be waiting for. I've already talked a little bit about managing our expectations. That's a big piece of it too. So, so we're getting there um, with some solutions, but it's it, nothing uh, ameliorates entirely the experience of stressful waiting. So, so Kate, that last point that you just made there, the last word you said, stressful waiting, and this whole time I was sort of thinking. Um, you know, are all these sort of uncertain situations always like a, it, it, there's a possible positive outcome, a possible negative outcome, right? So I think about sort of classic situations like uh, waiting for medical test news, right? That everybody can sort of relate to uh, waiting to find out if you got that job or not, waiting to find out if you got that promotion or not. Um, are, are they always this sort of um, uh, there's one piece of positive news or is one piece of negative news or is it like, are there other situations where you're, you're sort of waiting and it's no matter what it's positive, uh, but maybe slightly different positive news are, or does that even make any sense to, to, to think about? 
Yeah, it, uh, in fact, makes so much sense that I have on my computer here a picture of a bunch of lines that are meant to sort of depict these different types of waiting. Um, and the the idea with that, and the reason I bring it up, is that there, there does seem to be kind of a, a division maybe of different types of waiting, some in which the outcome is essentially foregone, or at least the valence, positive, negative, neutral, you know, is, is a foregone conclusion. Um, the most neutral of these might be something like waiting in line, waiting at a bus stop, you know, waiting mm. for customer service. Uh, there really are just kind of waiting for your life to carry on as it was. There's no expected major change in one direction or the other. Um, that's really where the research on patients starts to come in and, and become particularly relevant, but also research on boredom, um, frustration, wow. other sorts of emotional experiences. And then we have the ones that you mentioned that are kind of a, a version of that, which is something good is going to happen, let's say, but you don't know what version of good. So you're oh. a kid waiting for Christmas. You know you're getting presents. Yes. How awesome will these presents be? There we're talking more about eager anticipation. So excitement. Uh, maybe you're feeling impatient because the time isn't passing quickly enough, but ultimately <laughs> you're feeling quite you know eager and excited about uh, the future. On the flip side of that is something like dread, where we know something bad is coming, but we just maybe don't quite know what the form it will take or exactly how it will hit us. Um, so there again, it's you know you're not that uncertain about the outcome. You're just um, kind of waiting for it to come. The kind that I've spent most of my career studying are the kinds of situations where there's a pretty big unknown. Um, it could be something good or neutral, bad or neutral, uh, or good or bad, but really where we feel like something is going to fundamentally change in my life in a way that I can't predict right now. Um, and that's the experience I think we find especially stressful. Well, well, Kate, I guess one of the things that sort of is interesting about the, the sort of uh, strategies for dealing with that, that stress or that anxiety, you mentioned flow state, you mentioned mindfulness, you mentioned managing expectations. I think all of those make a lot of sense. I think the <laughs> the interesting thing when I think about flow state or even sometimes mindfulness is in some respects, it's almost like getting your mind off of the topic or getting your mind off of the thing that you're waiting on. And then it, that brings to mind questions like, well, uh, the, the famous uh, work by Dan Wagner about, you know, trying not mm -hmm. to think about something and how that actually makes you think about it more. Right. So somebody telling to get, telling you to get your mind off of it doesn't really help. But at the same time, it also, um, it brings to mind thoughts about sort of uh, sort of existential existence, and what does that really mean? So, like, if I if I decide to ignore um, the sort of problems facing me, so to speak, just forget about it. I'm just going to ignore it and pretend like there's nothing, you know, uh, j just continue as if nothing's happening. Um, on the one hand, you sort of deal with that immediate anxiety, but on the other hand, you've not really dealt with the greater problem. And I don't I don't really know if. I guess in many of these cases, there's nothing you can do about that greater problem. So maybe that is the best option. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, lots of thoughts. Um, yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, it, I think that um, I, I have this kind of three-part bit of advice, which is a little bit trite and, you know, brushes over a lot of empirical details, but I think kind of conveys uh, a decent plan for working with uncertainty in your own life that captures a lot of what you just described. So uh, step one there would be, is there anything I could be doing to change the outcome? So the kinds of things I study, you know, waiting for the results of a biopsy, waiting to find out if you pass the bar exam, it's done. There's nothing you can do in the time that you're waiting. And so the answer there is usually no. But if what you're worried about is someday in the future, having breast cancer, someday in the future, getting in a car accident, failing an exam, well, now you can do some things to prevent that outcome and, and you should let your worry motivate that action. Um, so I think that's kind of step one. But again, in many of the situations I study, that's off the table. Still, though, there's a there's an active step two that you could consider, which is 
is there anything I could be doing to prepare for bad news if it comes? Uh, and we've studied this a little bit. We haven't probably gotten at it quite as directly as I'd like, but I have talked to a lot of people anecdotally who say, you know, look, I was going through this breast cancer scare. I, it was going to be two weeks before I found out. All I could think about was breast cancer in that period of time. I found some comfort in reviewing my insurance coverage, in thinking about who would take my kids to work if I have to, you know, go into the hospital for a period of time, uh, and, you know, reviewing my work's leave policies, just kind of getting your ducks in a row so that if that bad news hits, uh, you're not completely flat-footed. And, and in the meantime, it, again, I think provides some amount of reassurance that like I'm doing something, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of control back from the universe in a situation where I don't have much. So those are good ways to channel your, your worry or anxiety if that's what you're experiencing. But if you've kind of checked off all the potential boxes there and there's really nothing else you can do, then all you really have left is to try to get through the day and, and not be completely distracted and try to have a decent night of sleep and you know keep a reasonable diet and, and not binge drink and do all the things that we want to do in those situations. Um, and some of those might be totally appropriate in some moments, but that's really where I think flow and, and potentially mindfulness or other kinds of kind of mental gymnastics can come in. Um, let me just say quickly about flow. You know, I, I'm familiar with Dan Wegner's work and just lots of other work on kind of the inefficiency or ineffectiveness of thought suppression um, or emotion suppression for that matter. But that's why flow is so great because if you really get there, it's not necessarily easy to get into. I could provide some tips if that's helpful, but um, if you can really get in that zone, you are in it and there's really nothing else your mind can do while you're there. That's kind of the joy and the the benefits of flow. And so, you know, it's not that, that you're having to battle those thoughts or that you're suppressing them. They just go. In fact, there's not a lot of great neuroscience on flow, but what little we have suggests that really the activity in the default mode network shifts such that you're just kind of not engaging in any of that mind wandering. All of the activity is really focused on the task. So, uh, flow is great for that. Mindfulness is not necessarily about avoiding anything. It's more about um, kind of practicing coexisting with, in this case, uncertainty in a way that's not quite as distressing. Um, so, you know, there, we kind of consider the fact that it's not like you can just turn your worry off, but there are some ways you can combat it and not uh, be harmed as much by it. Well, something you said there actually really struck home with me, and I'm almost looking at this as a therapy session in a sense now. Um, <laughs> but, but no, it it is that you know whenever you are faced with a situation where, okay, there most likely there's going to be some kind of negative outcome at the end of this. I'm waiting on it. I'm waiting on it. But the way I cope with things like that personally is I start thinking, okay, I can't control what this outcome is going to be, but what are the potential outcomes that could follow? What can I do to prepare mm -hmm. for what comes after I get this potentially bad news? And I feel like if I don't do that, if I just kind of just sit back and wait for that, that one outcome, I'm not looking beyond it, then that's whenever I start to kind of <laughs> unravel a little bit. So that's what kind of helps me cope. So that was, it's kind of interesting to hear you kind of say that that is a way that some people can do it because I was hoping I wasn't the anomaly here. <laughs> no, not at all. And in fact, that's really productive. I mean, in addition to maybe providing some, again, I don't know if I would say comfort because you're really in that moment having to engage with the very real possibility that this thing will go poorly, you know, which might not be so bad if it's an exam in an undergrad class. But if you're talking about a cancer diagnosis, you know, confronting that can be really challenging. But nonetheless, it does provide the sense of control. And as a bonus, maybe it is actually helpful if that bad news comes. I, I have looked at um, these questions a lot in the context of healthcare. Uh, I don't have, I'm not particularly a health psychologist, but so many of our most scary moments of waiting and uncertainty happen in that context. So I've, I've gone looking there for those experiences. 
Uh, and one of the things I was really intrigued with is this research base from, it's like the 70s and 80s, but I think still uh, plays reasonably well, that often when people get a cancer diagnosis, their brain just shuts down. It's like the big C word. You can't kind of function past that point. Um, and I, I, I've wondered, again, I don't have great data to this point, but some suggestive data that if you do some of that thought work in advance uh, and you kind of live in the reality for a minute, okay, this could really happen. What do I do when that happens? That might uh, position you better to kind of take the news, you know, take that blow and then be able to do what you often need to do in those doctor's visits, which is make really big consequential decisions in an informed way. So um, that's a big promise that, again, I don't quite support with data yet, but um, I think it's, it's really beneficial to go through that, that thought process you described. Well, in preparing for this episode, one of the things that stood out to me was that you, you do consider worrying to be helpful. Can you explain why? Yeah, it's related to some of the things we've talked about. So, you know, I, I'm a functionalist, which means in a, an emotion theory world, which is like the world's nerdiest place to live, but um, but it is the place I live. Um, basically, that means that I, I uh, am of the, I guess, opinion or educated perspective that when we have some sort of emotion or emotion-like experience in our lives, and many, many humans share that sort of experience, it's probably because, evolutionarily speaking, having that experience did more good for us than harm. It doesn't mean that in any given moment it's doing more good for us than harm, but, you know, that it's stuck around evolutionarily because it was more good than bad. When it comes to worry, you know, we can document lots and lots of bad things. And if it was only those bad things, you know, uh, increasing mental health challenges, poor sleep, poor health in lots of different ways, poor productivity, poor immune function. I mean, it's, it's no good in lots of ways. If that's all it was, you'd think that maybe evolution would have gotten rid of it by now. Uh, the fact that we all worry so kind of reflexively over at least some things, whatever it is for us that challenges us, um, suggests that it probably has some benefits. And, and those benefits have, in fact, been documented. So worry is really good for drawing our attention to something like distressingly so, but nonetheless, it's great for that. So it brings our attention to something that's a potential threat in the future. It holds our attention there through its kind of repetitive, persistent nature. And that's great if we can use that worry then to, to do something about it, as I said, to prevent a bad outcome, to prepare for the worst. Um, and if we didn't have worry, we would be you know, much more at risk for like failing to wear seatbelts and failing to get mammograms and failing to uh, prepare a study for an exam. So worry can be really helpful in that way. You know, the thing you have to watch out for is, uh, A, if worry becomes kind of disconnected from reality. So you're worrying about things you have no control over. You're worrying about things that really aren't yours to worry about. Um, or you're worrying a lot more than, uh, than is really appropriate for the situation. Then you sort of get into the territory of things like uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and it's, you know, worth checking in with someone who's a professional to deal with that. You know, again, the, so there's that piece. Uh, B is that if it's also just disrupting your life in a massive way in the moment, even if it's not kind of persistent or um, out of step with reality, there too, you know, you need to figure something out to be able to sleep, to be able to eat. And so I think in those moments, it's worth kind of treating it like the enemy. But uh, short of that, it, it can be really helpful for us. And it's worth, I guess, having a little kind of conversation with your worry, as silly as that sounds, to think, okay, I'm really worked up about this thing might it be that there's something I should be doing that I'm failing to do? 
Well, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting take because I, I think we typically think of worrying as bad, right? People don't want to worry, right? I mean, if you ask people for a list of goals or uh, things that they <laughs> would like to do less of in their life, I mean, I know there's researchers who do work, stuff on personality change. And that's one of the things that people list is I, I want to worry less. I want to stop worrying so much, which is kind of interesting. Of course, we also know there's individual differences in, in worrying. You You've talked about that already you mentioned defensive pessimism as one of those individual differences. I think we did a podcast episode a while back, Blake. You have to remind me. I think we did one on the sort of upsides of of neuroticism or or, or the uh, upsides of low adjustment as well. Um, so th- there are certain upsides, but I think that there's a, a lot of these downsides too. And I think. The, the point there is uh, it, it's really only worth worrying about it if you can do something about it. And do you really think, I, I guess, is that the key differentiator uh, for, for somebody who say um, high adjustment versus low adjustment or say high emotional stability versus low emotional stability? Is that, is that people who are uh, low emotional stability have a tendency to worry about things that they can't change? Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that they sort of miscalibrate? They worry more than really needs to be worried? Or do you think it's it's all the above? Or, or how do you think that works? Yeah, I think both of those have some really good evidence behind them in terms of being problematic. I've already mentioned generalized anxiety disorder, GAD. Um, I'm definitely not a clinician or a clinical psychologist even, but uh, you, you can't help but encounter that research area when you're studying worry because, you know, we all worry, but frankly, where people have mostly studied worry is where it becomes clinically problematic. And that really is like core to generalized anxiety disorder. Um, People who have GAD or have been diagnosed with it tend to uh, find that they're, or they believe that their worries are more helpful than, than do those who don't have that disorder. Um, which sort of means you're a bit resistant. People in that condition are a bit resistant to kind of working on their worry and reducing it. Um, but, you know, I guess <laughs> good news for them, they're not going to probably be able to get rid of it anyway. That's a horrifying <laughs> way to put it. But <laughs> because when you are, you know, with that diagnosis, you know, again, one of the core features of it is this kind of uncontrollable, over-exaggerated uh, um, experience of worry. And, and yeah, when, when, uh, when we think about kind of what makes worry functional versus not, I think that's exactly right. Control is the key. Um, if, you are, if, if worry comes up, and it will often come up in situations where we can't do anything about the outcome um, because it's prompted by threat, it's prompted by uncertainty, it, it doesn't know the difference between a situation where we can control something and when we can't. Um, when we can't, then worry kind of doesn't have a job to do and it just kind of floats around making us feel bad. When you can sort of spend that worry, channel it towards something productive, uh, you know, again, if you're uh, sort of normative clinically, then that worry should kind of fade out and, and go away um, at, at its best. At least that's how it works. Well, one of the places we actually see this show up is, is in with high performers, actually. Many high performers, uh, particularly, and, and Blake and I, uh, Kate, you probably don't know this, but Blake and I are notorious for, for making sports references on this <laughs> podcast. And in, in that world, in fact, people worry a lot about bad performance. They're so worried about bad performance that that's what motivates them to practice harder, right? So that's that sort of control element. I'm so worried that I'm going to perform badly in the next event or my next competition that I'm going to really over-prepare, really over-prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. And in some respects, that worry actually motivates people to perform at a high level. So I think that's another way where you can see worry actually being used for good, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you're talking exactly about defensive pessimism. So Julian Norum is the researcher Mm -hmm. who's kind of associated with that idea, who came up with 
all those good ideas and, and uh, did a lot of research to, to um, support them. Um, she, a very early paper of hers estimated that only about 10% of the population kind of qualifies as defensive pessimists. But if that's true, everyone I know is in that 10%. So um, <laughs> I think, you know, maybe, maybe it's true into varying degrees in different people. But, um, but yeah, that's a very uh, useful strategy. And in fact, her research shows that if you are a defensive pessimist, if that is kind of how it works for you, that, that anxiety and, and worry is motivating, not um, paralyzing or demotivating, then you really function best when you're in that state in terms of being motivated to prepare, to train, whatever the case may be. Uh, and in fact, if someone tries to tell you, hey, you shouldn't worry about it, everything will turn out okay, A, it makes people mad who are of that orientation, and B, it undermines their performance. So it's really a helpful um, kind of uh, series of, of, I don't know, mentalities, I guess, where you think, okay, I'm sure I'm going to just absolutely collapse in that next game. Therefore, I'm anxious or worried about it. Therefore, I'm going to use that to motivate myself to train extra hard, to stay in the gym longer hours. Um, and again, if you're oriented that way, that isn't actually dysfunctional. Um, if you're not oriented that way, that may sort of fall apart in the long run, I think. It wouldn't be sustainable. But I think you're right that a lot of high performers um, engage in that sort of pattern. Well, I went down quite the rabbit hole pr preparing for this episode. <laughs> and, and you know, you're a pretty prolific author, so the that rabbit hole can, can go quite deep, but there was uh, one of these that stood out. Uh, you were the lead author on a paper focused on religiosity and worrying. Uh, it, it's not really a secret that people lean on their religion and spirituality when dealing with adversity. However, I'm curious if through your research, you found that religious people cope with stress uh, and worry more effectively than those who are not. Uh, nope, <laughs> not according to that paper, at least. Uh, well, yeah, I read so, the paper, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like it was a good setup. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's it, that was an interesting one. So that was another place, you know, I referenced earlier in the interview uh, a paper where we realized, oh, we have all these studies that look at bracing for the worst and that have personality measures. Let's chuck them into a single paper. This was kind of similar, where we had been studying waiting in a particular way for. I don't know, six or seven years at that point, um, and had accumulated quite a few studies in lots of different circumstances of waiting where we had collected some measures of, uh, of religiosity. Um, admittedly, in the vast majority of those studies, we only have a very basic measure, just how religious are you, scale from one to 10 or something like that. Um, in many of those studies, we combine that with an item that says how spiritual are you, so kind of getting maybe out of the structural piece of religion. Um, but it really doesn't matter how we measured it. We also tried uh, really good, long, validated measures of lots of aspects of religiosity. And kind of no matter how we cut it, in every single study, people who reported being more religious uh, tended to, if anything, worry more than those who were less religious. Now, importantly, I cannot say anything about cause and effect there. And I talked about this finding on another podcast once and got a whole lot of uh, emails about it where people were saying, you know, what I think it is, is that worriers are attracted to religion, not that religion makes people worry. It could also be some third factor that, you know, people are attracted to religion because they are a certain kind of person and they uh, worry because they're that same kind of person. So I have no idea what the dynamic there is, but um, it was remarkably consistent across studies out in the real world, studies in the lab, studies about lots of different kinds of uncertainties that folks who said they were more religious seemed to worry more. Now, I should say, in terms of coping, it is also the case that they uh, people who were more religious tended to rely more on certain kinds of coping strategies that we know can be beneficial under the right circumstances. Um, one of those 
I have historically called preemptive benefit finding, which is like the opposite of a pithy term. I'm, I'm trying out preemption now. We'll see how that applies. But um, in the context of waiting, what that means is essentially lining up your silver linings in advance. So we know that when people get bad news, um, one somewhat usually functional way to cope with bad news or some kind of trauma is to look for the bright side, basically. What is something good that's come from this potentially very terrible event? And uh, some research, mine and others, shows that, that doing that seems to be helpful, including doing that in advance. So for example, we asked patients waiting for the results of a breast biopsy um, to potentially diagnose breast cancer. Can you imagine any good that might come from it? Uh, any silver lining if you basically receive a cancer diagnosis? And um, I'll, I'll pause for the listeners to imagine uh, or to, to guess kind of what percentage of our participants said yes, that yes, they could see some silver lining in having breast cancer um, when they hadn't even been diagnosed yet. I've heard estimates from friends and family from, you know, 1% to 10% maybe. Uh, the actual number is 76%, I think, or 77% uh, percent wow. of our participants said, yeah, I can, I can absolutely see some good that would come from it. I would appreciate life more. I'd be a role model for my daughters. I would get healthier et cetera, et cetera. Um, really beautiful responses, actually. So uh, that sort of preemptive effort to see the good and a bad outcome seems to be fairly pervasive. Um, and we have some other pretty recent evidence that it seems to be beneficial. Coming back to religion, people who are more religious do that more. So that wasn't in our studies, cracking through to actually reducing worry, but there may be some other upsides that we weren't quite capturing there. Well, I think the the religion question sort of points to one of the big uncertainties, right? So, I mean, we've talked about, uh, not necessarily in this podcast, but a lot of people have talked about uh, is one of the most important or one of the questions that you sort of uh, get introduced to when you, when you uh, gain consciousness in the world and sort of gain some degree of self-awareness is, you know, why am I here? Like, you know, what, what am I doing here? Uh, and what should I be doing? And then that's ultimately leads to another question of, you know, what happens when I'm gone? And, and to me, I think about that as the, the sort of, that's the big uncertainty, right? Uh, or, or maybe when will I go? And uh, again, what should I be doing uh, between now and then? What happens when I'm gone? And I think to me, the, the, the whole point on religion, I think people would agree with this, is that you, you, it, it provides a way to, to sort of deal with those, those big questions, those big questions in life. Um, I think there's other ways that people go about trying to address those questions as well. But, but it, the way we talk about it at Hogan is we talk about finding meaning for around really all of those questions is, is that, that, you know, that's what all human cultures have in common. One of the things that all human cultures have in common is that, is that people are trying to find meaning. They're trying to figure out what, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing? Um, what is this all about? And, um, I, 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 I would think that to some extent, you know, religion offers an answer to that question that it at least reduces stress, reduces anxiety around those questions. I think that's kind of what you were getting at there at the NK, but I don't know if you know of any data that, that supports that or not. Yeah, the, I, I didn't dive too deeply when I wrote that paper into the vast research on religiosity and, and kind of what people get from it. But I think you're right on. I mean, that was certainly, we, I should say, by the way, when we did this paper, when we ran these uh, analyses, I fully expected to see benefits of religiosity. Mm -hmm. I personally have kind of a weird, sordid past with religion, so I wasn't, you know, rooting for it necessarily. But it just seemed like, given exactly everything you said, surely it's the case that people who say, you know, I have a belief system that suggests to me that, or that, that I absolutely believe says uh, someone is on my side, someone is taking care of me, you know, kind of ultimately my best is at 
their hearts. Uh, you think that that would help people not worry so much about their outcome. Again, in our data, that's not what we saw, but you know, we didn't really, we very rarely follow people through to the period when they get the news. You know, it's very possible that really, excuse me, religiosity is doing a whole lot of favors for people once they're facing, you know, the inevitable bad mm. outcome. It's just maybe not as uh, effective, I guess, maybe during the period of uncertainty. Um, I, you know, again, I'm a social psychologist. I tend to think situations are really powerful um, in combination, obviously, with individual differences. But, you know, I think that uncertainty or waiting in the way that I study it is just really strong situationally. And um, if we're to believe some of the things I've posited about evolution, you know, it's we worry in those situations because it's kept us alive as a species. And so it's probably pretty functional that just because we have a belief in a higher power that that doesn't completely go away. Uh, now, again, why they seem to worry more that I have a little bit more trouble um, explaining and maybe there is some reverse causality going on there. Um, I'll just mention briefly, I can't help myself. Uh, Ryan, you may remember my former student, Arazu Kavanaugh. Uh, yes. She once kind of famously said in a, in a lab meeting, um, just reflecting on our research, that all of life is just one big waiting period to die. <laughs> and I've, <laughs> I've, never for, I've never forgotten that sort of dire summary of our research area. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well, I liked my my line, the big uncertainty better, but okay, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty good. That's a little <laughs> more poetic, yeah. <laughs> well, I was as I was putting this outline together for this episode and and particularly around this part, I couldn't help but think, and I don't want to offend any any religious people out there because these are Robert Plant's words, not mine, but from from Led Zeppelin's song. <laughs> Crying will help you, but praying won't do you no good. You know that mm-hmm. that's, those, those words really kind of rang true based on what I was reading in that, in this, in the paper. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, um, this may or may not be a transition that you, that you're ready to make outline wise, but, um, but I will mention, you know, we've also persisted in looking at religiosity and, and even in a more deep way, uh, with the more recent work I've done on patients, which of course is super related to stuff on waiting. It's just casting a little broader lens in terms of what we are interested in now, uh, and of course, patience is like a deeply religious concept for lots of people. It appears in all the major holy books and some minor ones. It's like really at the core of some religions, um, religious traditions, uh, particularly Buddhism and, and Islam. Uh, and so it's this like really deeply religious concept. And yet, at least the way that we're measuring it in our new studies, uh, we are finding basically zero correlation with any kind of measure of religiosity that we include if anything, slightly negative um, in terms of actually practicing patients in their daily life. So again, not quite sure what's going on there, but it it doesn't, I don't know, religion doesn't seem to be as um, straightforwardly helpful, I guess I will say in those moments as I might've anticipated. Well, I I think this is all just fascinating stuff, but (laughs) before we we get to the point where we're going to wrap up this episode, uh, my next question, because this is the science of personality, and we've, we've discussed this a little bit in some of the earlier questions that we we proposed to you, but you were also the lead author on a paper comparing the role of personality during stressful life experiences. So can you give us just a high level overview of that paper? Uh, yes, though it will again reveal my tendency towards more social psychological <laughs> predictions um, and maybe findings, because really what we were looking at there was the role of a few key uh, personality traits, namely neuroticism uh, or inversely emotional stability, um, conscientiousness and dispositional optimism, which we've already talked about. And we were looking at the role of those uh, of those personality traits in predicting things like worry, other kinds of distress um, during a period of waiting, but also in contrast to periods of preparation. So 
in many of the kinds of uh, situations that I've studied, things like, you know, preparing for an exam, let's say, uh, you have kind of that first phase where you're studying, you don't know what your outcome will be, you're still very uncertain, but you have that control over your outcome to some extent, um, compared to this period of waiting that follows where, you know, let's use the exam example again, you've, you've submitted your test, you know, your grade is a foregone conclusion at that point, you just don't know what it is. And so we were interested in whether personality might um, kind of have different uh, different effects or different magnitude of effects in those two different kinds of circumstances. And the high level summary, I guess, is that it seems like personality matters a bit less in terms of predicting the kinds of things you things you think it would when we're waiting, when that control is really removed from us. Um, and these were studies specifically of exam performance. So these were exams that had been submitted, all control was gone. Uh, and personality just didn't seem to matter quite as much as it did in the period where people still were actively in control of their outcomes. Well, I, I, Blake brought up musical references. I think the most obvious musical song lyric. In fact, I heard it in the car radio yesterday as I was, uh, made, made me, re- reminded me that we were recording this, this <laughs> podcast today, uh, today is, is Tom Petty's the waiting is the hardest part, right? Uh, that's the, the line. I think the song is just called the waiting. Maybe I don't yes. actually. Know yeah. That. Yeah. All right. uh, that's correct. Uh, yeah. and I think the story on that has to do something with, uh, Janice Joplin line that she gave to him, but I don't remember all the details on it, but I think, that goes back to this to this earlier point that we were making, was it was sort of about waiting for uh, this more uh, a, a sort of enthusiastic you know event, right? I'm waiting to go onto the stage, just saying this is going to be fun, this is going to be exciting, um, and I think that sort of waiting for 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 opening Christmas presents, the, the example that you used before, um, and and it just seems like some people would be more excited about that that kind of thing than others. Other people would go, ah, well, this is exciting, but 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 you're, you do do you think that? I guess my point here is that do you think it's only in these sort of uh, waiting for possible negative or possible positive results where you don't see those individual differences? Or do you think that there might be these more individual differences in those other kind of scenarios? Great question. I, I mean, I don't know is the is, is the empirical answer, but I think you make a good point. It reminds me of some research. It's not personality research, but it might be um, informative here. Uh, and the name of the researcher is escaping me, but I'll shout it out if it comes to me. Um, who's done this work on on kind of reframing that feeling of arousal that you get in anticipation of some kind of performance, giving a talk, doing a performance on stage, doing a podcast, I guess, uh, and and kind of trying to turn that feeling of what might be inter- interpreted by your mind as anxiety or worry, and just basically telling yourself this this feeling I'm having is excitement. It's like redirecting, relabeling, essentially. Um, that sort of uh, pre-performance arousal. And, you know, it, it, it's an interesting uh, tactic, I guess, kind of strategically in order to feel a bit better before a performance. I've certainly tried to use it myself. I have to say I didn't find it totally effective. I still felt those butterflies in my stomach. Um, but it does suggest that, you know, people can feel one of two ways or, or somewhere in between maybe about uh, about that kind of an- anticipation or that eager anticipation, one more positive than the other. Um, when I think about what might predict who feels one way or the other about that, it the things that come to mind are more like experience, expertise, confidence. You know, when I think about giving a talk, mm-hmm. right when I started my career, that was, you know, stomach butterfly city. Now I barely think about it. Like teaching a class, you just get up there and like, all right, let's do this. You know, it's not at some point particularly um, anxiety provoking, but that really has more to do with experience and confidence than it does personality. But I wouldn't be surprised if personality gets in there too. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is some research about this sort of using that anxiety, uh, sort of reframing that anxiety in a positive way, right? The reason I'm anxious is because this is fun. This is exciting. This is what I want right. to do. This is what I love. Um, there, there's a, a, a woman my wife plays tennis with, and <laughs> uh, they got into a tiebreaker recently. And, and the, this woman who she was partners with my wife, she turns to my wife and goes, I love tiebreakers. And it was just like <laughs> this, you know, tiebreakers are very anxiety inducing, right? We might lose, it's close, it's tied up, anything could happen in a tiebreaker. And heard this attitude of, I love tiebreakers, was that it, was, it seemed to be like this clear example of, I'm trying to reframe this in a way that, um, you know, it, that, that channels that energy into something that's good, that's positive, that motivates me, um, that, that, that uh, makes me uh, feel confident in, in, in my ability to go perform rather than nervous or, or anxious about my abil- ability to perform. So, so, yeah, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, one last question, Kate, before we, we let you go here. There are a lot of historical adages focused on patience, such as patience is a virtue and Rome wasn't built in a day. Are there any that stand out to you as helpful or do you have any of your own? Huh. Uh, I, I, I don't find those particularly helpful, to be honest. And, I, and most of the sort of famous adages I feel that way about when it comes to patients, um, just as a fun historical note, uh, the first incident that we can find of, of the phrase patience as a virtue was in a poem in the 1300s. So it's been around for a minute. Um, and there's you know, versions of that in the Bible and other places as well. The way that I think about patience, and this is a really new idea. In fact, I, I literally five minutes before this podcast taping put this theory paper up online as a preprint, so it is available to your listeners. Um, it's going back under review pretty soon. Uh, this paper that describes a theory of patience that's very new. It's quite different from how anyone else has thought about it, uh, which definitely means I could be wrong. But um, but the way that I tend to think about patience is not as something we are. Uh, certainly not as something that makes us a good or bad person, which is kind of the implication of calling it a virtue, um, but really something that we that we do. Uh, it's a process. It's a, an action in some ways, at least a, a mental action or emotional action. Um, to just get slightly more specific, the, the theory proposes that impatience is really the key to understanding patience uh, and that impatience is really an emotion. It's an emotion we can identify through all the various characteristics that kind of get something to count as an emotion. And that when that feeling arises, which it tends to do when we feel like I'm trying to reach some goal or some future state and the time is just moving too slowly, I really want this thing to happen faster. When that feeling of impatience arises, that emotion of impatience, then we can uh, manage it. We can regulate it through the process of patience. Um, And so that really takes it quite out of the virtue realm and situates it in, you know, kind of uh, the, the nerdy research on emotion regulation. It's not quite as poetic, but I think it's much more practical. Um, and and I, I just haven't found virtue language to be especially personally, um, though some of my best friends study patience as a virtue, so uh, no offense meant to them. But for me personally, the concept of virtue feels very kind of man-made or, or you know human-imposed. And patience is something that we're all kind of familiar with doing or failing to do. And so I think that even the most patient seeming person has moments where they're not and the most impatient person has moments where they are and that suggests that there's something much more situational about it. Um, So that's kind of where I am with patience at this point. Patience may or may not be a virtue, but I think it is something we can learn to do better. 
Yeah, Kate, I actually had the pleasure of, of watching your talk uh, oh, yeah. on this topic um, recently at, at this conference in, in Chicago. So I actually got to see you talk about this and I got to see you go into detail on the model, which was which was really interesting. Of course, I had questions and thoughts and comments, but so did many other people. So uh, <laughs> I thought, well, I'll talk to Kate some other time and I get to ask my, so this is the time. Uh, so <laughs> as I was thinking about it, um, and you sort of hinted at this ju- just now, but to, to some extent, it's you, you look at patients as more of a self-control process. It's more about emotional control, regulating those emotions, regulating those feelings, regulating um, the sort of impulsivity uh, that, that you might have in a situation. Again, thinking about that, the, the kid on, on Christmas morning wanting to rip open presents and you're telling them to be patient, wait for dad to get out of bed because he's still sleeping <laughs> in or whatever, you know, something like that, right? So- um, but but that really is this this sort of effortful control process. So how do how do you see those as similar or different? Similar or different to the concept of patience as a virtue? Uh, no, no, sorry. As similar, uh, how do you see patience as similar or different from things like effortful control? Um, oh. uh, yeah, yeah, that that sort of thing. Yeah, so I, I don't know that I would say that it's, yeah, great. I mean, that's a much broader category. Obviously, self-control in particular is a really broad term, just like anything that requires anything like effort, um, even if we're not aware that it's requiring effort. So I would say patience is kind of subsumed within some of those terms that you just mentioned. When we think about uh, emotion regulation, you know, it's a form of self-regulation, specifically uh, pointed at our emotional experience. Um, and that can happen in very subtle ways where we don't even realize we're regulating our emotions. It can happen in very explicit ways where we you know, physically remove ourselves from a situation. We talk ourselves through something. We count to 10, take 10 deep breaths, whatever. Um, but all those various things that we're doing are all versions of, of self-control. They're just specific versions that target some kind of emotional um, experience that we want to make stronger or weaker. When it comes to patients, uh, I'm getting even sort of more specific. It's like even further into the center of a circle, <laughs> the kind of over fully overlapping Venn diagrams here, where um, I just see patients as a form of emotion regulation. It's what we call emotion regulation when we're doing it to inpatients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, again, it's not to say that people are aware that that's what they mean when they describe patients, but I've really um, you know, dived quite deeply into this topic and I've watched philosophers and, and people in religious studies and even in psychology to the limited extent that psychology has studied patients, you know, just be kind of confused, a little lost as to like, I don't know, it's just this good thing that we kind of do and I don't really know what it means, but it just seems like a good thing. And to me, we can get very specific about it. It's not reacting in an unregulated way to that feeling of impatience that we all know so well. I should pause here and say, sometimes we don't want to regulate impatience. Impatience can be incredibly motivating in terms of social change, in terms of change in our own lives, you know, in terms of getting information we deserve, for example. Um, but to the extent that it's disruptive and causing problems with our social lives or our personal lives or our well-being, then we would do well to regulate it. Um, again, it's not a very uh, you know, poetic or kind of, it's a bit of a prosaic way of thinking about it, but I, I do think it's much more practical and, and it probably maps on better to how we use that term in everyday life. Yeah. You, you anticipated my follow-up, uh, my second <laughs> question there, which was, uh, which is, uh, I, I sort of, in some, some respects see as an opposite of patience that isn't impatience, which is a sort of sense of urgency. It's not really an opposite, but, um, but I, but I think that that would, 
in some ways be uh, negatively related to, to the concept, right? Having a sense of urgency, we need to get this thing done. Uh, we don't want right. to wait around. Or, I mean, you see that among uh, high tech types, entrepreneurs, uh, people who are in startup organizations, right? That that's the sense of urgency is really important. We can't wait around the other. The competition is working. We need to be working, right? Uh, rather than, than being patient. And and it does right. feel like there are times where, uh, to, to that point about pain just is a, is a virtue. It's like, actually, at times, this might not be so good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think a sort of uh, feeling of urgency, you know, we could call that a feeling of impatience. I suspect if you asked a person who was in that moment, like, what is the emotion you're feeling? That's probably right. how they would label it. Yeah, you're it. probably right. Uh, so, you know, not to overly fit everything into my little model, but I do think that that kind of makes, it's connected to what we've been saying. But exactly as you said, I mean, it's not always virtuous to be patient. And that is something that philosophers have tangled with, even people in, in the kind of religious studies angle. Um and it, I've been doing this thing called psychology research for long enough that I can start to see some patterns in my research. One of the things that is very much uh, kind of a pattern is that I like to think about how things that might seem bad might be good. So that's worry, that's pessimism, and how things that might seem good could be bad. That's optimism and now patience uh, or impatience being good. Um, and I think it's it's more fun <laughs> to think about those less intuitive kinds of approaches than to just go, yeah, patience is probably a good thing, probably most of the time, moving on. Well, Kate, uh, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. This has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. Um, I think that there are actually a lot of applications. I know we didn't talk a lot about applications. We sort of hinted at some here, but I think there's actually a lot of applications for for your research and, and people in the workplace, and particularly in the coaching area, when you're trying to coach people who are in these kind of situations where they're applying for jobs or waiting for new jobs. Um, they're, they're trying to get promoted. They're, they're trying to be patient as they wait for that new job. They're trying to to, to, to um, stave off that impatience for the next move in their career. Or maybe it's the right time to, to say, no, enough is enough and it's time to move on. And I think that you've given a lot of tips and advice for people here that they can really use in those scenarios. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and thanks so much. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kate, I echo Ryan's sentiments. Thanks so much. This has been a great discussion. I, I do think our audience is really going to appreciate this episode and enjoy it a great deal. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 81. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.